This is Recorded Future, Inside Security Intelligence. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 213 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Joining us this week is John Ford, Managing Director of Global Government Services and Insider Threat Risk Solutions at Mandiant. Our conversation centers on his experience with effective insider threat programs from both a technical and human perspective. With 20 years of experience in the FBI before joining Mandiant, John Ford gained extensive knowledge from bringing to justice some of the world's most notorious cyber criminals. Knowledge which informs his approach to solving today's most pressing security issues. Stay with us. My career started almost 28 years ago. I was a, a police officer, started my career starting in law enforcement in Austin, Texas. And in 1998, I joined uh, the FBI. And through that time, as you can imagine, we went through everything you can imagine with 9-11 and the changes that evolved within the Bureau. I went to cyber, and I was one of the first agents out there to really start cyber task forces in the Bureau. I moved to headquarters, where I worked in what was called the Special Technologies and Applications Office. So that's where we were looking at horizon technologies and horizon events that we might need to plan and prepare for in, in the event that those would come to fruition Promoted again, went out to San Antonio, was a cyber supervisor out here, and then promoted again and was leading our four deployed operations in, in foreign space with our uh, our country partners overseas. So specifically mm-hmm. working in cyber again. So And then at some point decided to make the jump to the private sector. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I retired in uh, 2018 and joined Mandiant, came over as a director working in government solutions, and well, actually... I actually see on both sides, I actually see on the commercial and the government side of the business. And during that time, I was asked to support an investigation that was going on. And initially, it was believed, based on all the indicators, that it was some type of external adversary that had uh, breached this organization and had destroyed their SIM, essentially. And so I was brought into it. I started looking at the information and the data and the analysis, and I quickly pivoted the the investigation into an insider threat investigation because all the indicators hmm. were there and believed at that time actually the insider was also probably one of the responders that was going on based upon what we were seeing from the adjustments that were coming out. So every time they would meet and we would do an action, an adjustment would occur, right? And they shouldn't know about that. And it would end up being correct. It was two contractors working for this organization that decided that they had some challenges with their workplace and decided that they were going to show their value by destroying the sim and basically coming back to rescue it, um, so to speak. It's just that they couldn't rescue it, the damage they had done. And so that was our my first introduction into Mandiant from an insider threat scenario. I've taken that piece and really run with it with the company and started building offerings around that from what we have heard from our clients, what they need. So we started basing it around what we thought, what we knew they needed based on their feedback. And that's where we are today. You know, after almost 28 years of doing this job, right, of law enforcement before Mandiant, I've really had the opportunity to see a lot about people. 
right? And while I'm not an FBI profiler by any stretch, I certainly have seen enough over that period of time to understand people, understand motivations, and really kind of bring some of that those thoughts and practices together. Because quite frankly, most of them are, are repeats. After you see it so many times, it's just a different flavor of what they have. you've seen others do. And it's been a lot of fun. And then getting to reapply that in a different way. So we started looking at, well, if we are seeing these type of actions, why don't we try to cause those actions, right? And what I mean by that is that we started a group to actually capture the world's leading hackers. We all had, we put this together. It was a global effort between all of our partner countries that worked with us. And we actually got together and put and said, who are the worst hackers in the world? And if we were able to arrest them, who would have the most global impact to reduce crime, right? And so, but these are, these are hackers that lived in, in countries where they're protected by these countries, right? So how do, you, right. how do you get a hold of these people that the countries are not going to necessarily allow you to get a hold of? We had tried arrest warrants. We tried Interpol notices. And we tried. It didn't work, right? They just didn't move. So we started looking from the opposite end. We started looking at, let's look at their lives and see what they like to do and what they will do. And let's look at who their girlfriends are, their, their family are. Let's look at those opportunities like when I used to hunt fugitives. Let's look at creating those opportunities where we can actually have a, an opportunity to arrest them, right? And so we did. And so we started looking from the opposite end of it and started looking at those behaviors that we knew that were going to be very important to their lives where they were going to probably lower their OPSEC a little bit and then took advantage of them. And we captured the most amount of fugitives ever uh, in the history of the Bureau and other countries. And so they would be arrested by the countries, right? Not by us, because they were still in foreign space. And then they would go through the appropriate legal processes and be turned over to the United States for prosecution. And even getting Putin's top hacker, giving a game, and we got him. And when we got him... Putin put out a statement, I demand the end to the hunt of Russian citizens in third countries. And <laughs> at that point, I made that actually part of my resume because <laughs> I was like, no one else could talk to that, right? right, so, right. so when Nikulin was arrested, I mean, Nikulin was, he was just prosecuted in San Francisco and, and, and sentenced, but he was, he had done Yahoo and Dropbox and those, right? You can see in, it's public now who he had breached. But you can imagine when he was considered the Putin of all hackers. He was considered the top hacker in the world. And are these the stories we hear where you're able to nab some of these folks while they're out on vacation? Mm-hmm. When they're yeah. on vacation, when they're going out to eat, when they just happen to be in a travel status that happens to bring them across either U.S. or, or into U.S. territory or friendly territory, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. And so there's so, so sometimes that those countries will cooperate and ask the plane to land, and then they go arrest them and pull them off, and the plane goes on its merry way. Well, let's dig into our main topic of discussion today, which is uh, this most recent Mandiant M-Trends report. This is the 2021 report. Before we dig in here, I mean, this report has quite a pedigree going back over a decade now. Yes, it does. It is one of the signature reports that we put out each year and really starts showing the trends of how what types of, of activity has really been taken over the years 
And also, I think what's more interesting for us, I mean, it talks about the Bauer families, the types of malicious activities that are occurring. But what I think is even more interesting is where it shows dwell time is very important to us because it really shows that time of where they're the detection has really been lowering year over year, and we're getting better and better at detecting those those incidents. I'm not talking about just we as Mandiant, but I'm talking about we as in companies and governments. They're getting much better at detecting these much quicker. It was an interesting sort of, I suppose, two sides to that dwell time story. As I was reading through the report myself, that dwell time is going down, but that may be because of how noisy and ubiquitous these ransomware operators are getting. That is, well, that is part of it. And so from a ransomware perspective, right, there is, it's not just about there being noisy, they overtly have moved from ransom to extortion. And Mm. so it used to be that you would click on a link, it would freeze up your system or your network, and then you would get this pop-up, right? And then you knew that ransom had occurred, and at that point... You know that you're going to have to either pay to to get your networks back or restore for backups, right? But the but they have really changed their the, what they have done. They have started going into systems without really anyone's knowledge to a potential degree. Really, I mean, they're very stealthy, is what I mean by that. So they become very stealthy in how they get into organizations. They're doing a lot of reconnaissance inside of organizations. They're identifying what they want to take. They're identifying where all the backups are. And then at that point, they're exfilling the data. They're deleting every backup that you have. And then they're locking the system up. And then they publicly Hmm. make it known with a sample of that data that they have your data and this is the price. So you end up getting almost extorted twice from that, you get extorted to get your network back, and you get extorted to get your data back. And it's become very right. profitable because they're also not just doing this in a random way like they used to. It was a very shotgun approach. They are actually identifying which targets they want to attack and extort based upon their assessment of the value of that organization and the likelihood of payment and the likelihood of the payment that they're wanting. It's remarkable, this ongoing and I suppose continuing trend of the professionalization of these organizations as they keep, it seems like year after year, in many ways, they're upping their game. They are up in their game. And it's not just a closed organization, as most would think. It's not just a group of people in a, a room somewhere doing this. It's very disparate, and they've actually made their business efficiencies as well. So they have groups that only design the ransomware. They have the groups that are only doing the targeting. They have the groups that that only get into the systems and exfil the data. And they have other groups that are managing the data and handling the extortion. And that, from that perspective, yes, they have professionalized that um, their ability to become very efficient at what they're doing, but also target in a much more precise way to get the most money. These criminals are trying to get the most money that they can, quite frankly. Well, I mean, let's go through some of the other details in the report. What are some of the things that stand out to you? From a malware perspective, that what we're discovering when we're doing our instant response is that the majority of those have not been seen before. Right. So, hmm. you know, that that becomes a very interesting point for us because that's one of the key detectors that most organizations look right. How can I block known malware, SAM, malware that's out there based upon whatever indicators those organizations use? But we're seeing more and more custom malware that's out there that is much harder to detect 
And so when we're doing our instant responses, we're seeing that the majority has not been seen before. And so for us, that makes it we're starting to have to detect based upon behaviors as opposed to detect based upon signature. And I suppose, I mean, we have to mention that, of course, as everybody knows, 2020 was not your typical year. Thanks to COVID-19, a lot of things shifted around. They did. And one of the things that we first saw start moving around, too, was also insider threats. Mm. When there, when the work from home began in 2020 for us and they started seeing more people going home, also people started reacting to what will the economy be tomorrow, right? And what does this mean? We started seeing layoffs occur. And from when we started seeing those occur as well, then that became a, a challenge for organizations. And one of the, the first series that we started seeing of attacks were when layoffs occur, that there were still backdoors that were left by the employees in the organizations and they were destroying their data that would make the company profitable and destroying their backups. And so that was one of the first things that we started to see. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I suppose, too, that if a company's cutting back, then the folks who are responsible for defending them may be understaffed as well. They, they were. And at the time, though, it was also because prior to COVID, there was in this space, there was a lot of defenses placed against external attacks. That's the primary focus of business, right? They Sometimes businesses prioritize based on volume, volume of attacks that may occur. And so their prioritization and investments occurs from that perspective. But when you're protecting a network, you also have to protect from the inside as well. We have many, there's many organizations that have much more trust with their own employees and because of that, they have not also applied similar security measures to employees as they would have from an external attacker, which has left them vulnerable to attack from the inside. Mm-hmm. Did you see any interesting trends or, or movements when it comes to the particular industries that were being targeted here? Have they shifted who they're going after? From an insider perspective, we did see that one of the, the biggest things that started happening was not just because of the shift from work. In the shift from work, we didn't, we saw from just an industry perspective who was laying off, right? And that included in energy. We saw that included in financials. We saw that in information technology, especially those who were developing new technologies, as well as education in, in universities. We saw that as well. But what started shifting very quickly after this was there was an accelerated opportunity for research around COVID, right? How can, who could come to market with the COVID vaccine? Right after that is what we saw, saw a shift in where it started becoming much more in an espionage perspective. There were still yeah. many businesses that were going to continue moving forward. And their research was key. And we started seeing from an espionage perspective, those that were from outside, there were nation state actors that were starting to recruit and seeing who they could recruit inside of these organizations, either individually or through the Thousand Talents program or other talents programs that are done by the countries to identify individuals who could bring that information to them so they could be first to market and essentially try to reduce that development curve right on the research and development side and try to have something they could go to market faster with. 
Yeah, that's a fascinating point. I mean, I suppose this unique situation we found ourselves in and and are continuing to deal with of something that affects the entire world. And so if you can get a little jumpstart on your reaction to that, you could come out of something like the pandemic with an advantage, I suppose. Yes, and that's actually, that's very true. And then as we start coming out of COVID, we also started seeing businesses starting doing mergers, right? So we've been brought into several mergers and acquisitions because during mergers and acquisitions, there's at times there's going to be layoffs during those events. And then you have three problems at the same time. If you do not have a robust insider threat program, you have those who are being laid off and they may or may not know ahead of time. If they know ahead of time, it they might decide that they want to take intellectual property or do damage to systems. You have new employees that are going to be onboarded during the acquisition who you've not truly vetted yet, but you're going to be giving access to. So you don't understand really what their behaviors or what their accesses will really understandable need to be so you can get a baseline of their activity. And you have those who are still going to be employed, but are still wondering, will they have a job tomorrow? And so you really become an area where much you have to have a very robust insider threat program to try to identify what is going to be malicious behavior and what is not malicious behavior and try to prevent as much as you can your intellectual property from being stolen or your merger being damaged because they have maybe done some type of damage to their networks, which you know is going to be a, a cost that would come out of that acquisition as well. When you say having a robust insider threat program, what does that look like? What is a, a, a company who's doing that successfully? What sort of things do they have in place? First off, they're going to have a, a really good insider threat tooling in place. And what I mean by that is that they're going to have a, a DLP in place and they're going, to have a, a, they're going to have a good Yuba in place and what they're doing. Now, that's from a technology perspective, but in that place, it has to be something that works on and off network. So whether it's off network, let's say a laptop and it's taken home, it still needs to perform in the same function that it would, whether it was on network and be able to do that. And it needs to be lightweight, right? And it can't be it can't be tampered with, right? So it still needs to do its job when it needs to do its job. But inside a thread is much more is much more beyond technology. We do see organizations that try to repurpose their current technology and try to leverage that as insider threat technology. And it has limitations. If it's not purposely built for insider threat detection, it can have additional challenges. These are employees, all right? These might be either employees of yours or they might be employees because they're a partner agency that's working with you, a third party. And because we're talking about real people, Litigation could occur in the future, whether that's criminal, civil, or something through HR. And because of that, we would want to ensure that they, the cases are built strictly upon evidence. So we have a, we'll call it follow the data model, right? We, everybody that's part of our team has had, you know, been part of law enforcement at some point in time. And we understand that we have to have information that predicates a case all the way to a point where it can be presented to where um, it can stand on its own. And so and when we're looking at into what we're seeing today is that insider threats are less likely to be individuals and more likely to be groups of people. Almost the majority of the investigations that we have done, and this is why I think one of the reasons our insider threat program is so well is because we do all these incident responses, 
as well as we do all of these transformation projects. We get to see a lot, plus we have people with a great experience. Mm-hmm. But if you go in and you see a detection and you shut that detection down, you're not seeing the full picture of everyone that is supporting that operation, so to speak, or that, that, that engagement. So what we are seeing lately is that you have an individual who's doing the action, be it a theft or destruction. They are working with somebody. Lately, we've seen them in the SOCs. We've seen them in the Insider Threat Program. And we've seen them in the C-suite with who they have been working with. Or we have seen them also working with nation states and trying to support whatever action is going on inside of that organization. And if you do an investigation too quickly and you don't really place all those pieces together, then you're missing that group, right? And you don't understand the full picture. So you need to have people that are supporting the insider threat program that have a lot of experience in building these kind of cases. You also want to ensure that you have a culture that's built within an organization that really comes from the top down. It really needs to come from the board level. And whoever is running the Insider Threat Program needs to be reportable and accountable to the board in that program. It needs to fit the culture of the organization. All organizations are built and culturally a little bit different in how they work with their employees and the guidance and the mission that they have. It needs to fit that culture. And I would say also, if we have the opportunity to, it needs to truly work with across all business lines. Now, it needs to be centrally focused, but it needs to work across all the business lines to provide value to the whole organization. It can't be created in a vacuum. I would say also, as lastly, it needs to be assessed, right? So we all believe that we can create great programs, right? But it needs to be independently assessed because A program that's built inside of an organization is only reviewed within that organization, so we don't have really anything to benchmark against. We believe that you should have annual assessments of these programs in their journey because other organizations, like Mandiant, we're going to see a lot of insider threat programs, and we are going to have the opportunity to provide guidance to a lot of organizations, and companies can benefit from that knowledge, right? And they can continue to up-level their organization. So that's kind of where I would look at What's your experience with how with what companies go through in the aftermath of an insider threat event? After things have been taken care of, the cleanup has been happened, I would imagine there must be a cultural and probably an emotional impact on the folks who are left behind. It can. An insider probably has the most impact. Now, you know, we can think of ransomware breaches and we can think of organized criminals breaching, we can think of phishing, and they may have caused some kind of lower level event. Many companies come to believe that, you know, those events are going to occur. It's going to, it's not the if, it's the when. But an insider event, right, can actually have more impact on reputation, customer trust, and investor confidence. And the Mm -hmm. reason is because if An organization is trusting to do business with your organization, but it can't trust your employees to protect its own data, to protect the transactions, to protect its intellectual property, then it really is hard for that company to do business with others. And so after an event, then everyone feels that they're under increased suspicion of where they do others believe that we were part of that Effort. And so mm-hmm. it becomes harder for those people at times. 
And this is where culture and really working with HR really matters because not everybody is an insider and not everyone should be looked at as an insider, right? It's usually a very small percentage of people within an organization when it does occur. And we have to be very careful, right, not to label people or individuals. And we also need to be very concerned about how that may appear. Coming from law enforcement, there was a day in law enforcement the word profiling was used, right? And I I think it's a horrible word to use. I don't like using it. And when we have to really follow that evidence, right, and understand who was really involved and who was not involved, right? If we start getting to where we're looking at more profiling, because I hear some organizations talk about inside the threat programs where they profile users and profile events. Behaviors is one thing because you can tie it to some type of binary event. It's something that occurred. But when we start looking into profiling, sometimes we can overreach and we're bringing in people that had nothing to do with it and it can, can impact their daily lives. And that's really an unfair situation for them to be in. Yeah, I could see that sort of thing being ultimately kind of corrosive to your company culture. Yeah, and that's why you want staffing that have significant experience in insider threat. They're exceptionally Mm -hmm. skilled in interrogating data. They have excellent interviewing skills. Their program is informed by intelligence and data. It's not hearsay or thoughts or beliefs. And their whole job is to try to separate what's malicious from non-malicious behaviors. Because we have to remember, these are real people, and we need to treat these individuals as real people. They're our employees, and it's important to understand that they are, that these are part of our, in some cases, part of our family, right? The employee culture of a family that they have. So we need to take those cautions. Our thanks to John Ford from Mandiant for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Futures Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Caitlin Mattingly. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with executive editor Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Music.